All right, well, we are going to pick up where we left off last week. We've been in this series equipped. Let's read out of 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God, is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, and instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. That's what we're looking to do. We need to be equipped. We need to know what we're equipped for. We need to know what we're equipped with. It doesn't matter what I give you if you don't know how to use it. You ever handed somebody a tool that's not a handyman? And they know what to do with that tool? You ever seen somebody use a wrench to pound a nail? Come on, I mean, I'm sure I'm not the only one. Listen, if you're a guy and you're not a construction guy and you need something, you just reach for the closest thing and you start swinging, screwdriver works. I mean, there are a lot of things you can use to pound nails. There's, you know, they'll get in there. They may not be straight, but all you've got to do is hold two pieces of wood together, right? I mean, that's all that matters. But being equipped, having the right tools, having the right skill sets, having the right knowledge, rightly dividing the Word of God, that's so crucial today. In fact, Paul asked me a question this morning about Romans 13, so what I'm going to do is next week I'm going to go through that for you, just kind of explain that, talking about government and whatnot, and so that way we can all be on the same page. The key is understanding to rightly divide the Word. I mean, all of this stuff plays hand in hand. It's very important that we understand this because we're in a chaotic world. I don't think anybody would argue with that. I don't care which sort of side of the political aisle you're on. They both sides think the other side is nuts. And the truth is, is all sides are nuts. They're all crazy. I mean, but, and here we are as Christians, as, as believers, we're like, you got all these different theological things that are going on right now and these new ideas that are coming up that really aren't new ideas. They're old ideas. They're just bad ideas. They should have died hundreds of years ago when they had the opportunity, and they didn't. We, we want to take the Bible and say, you know, it doesn't really fit the way we live our lives today. Maybe we should tweak some of the, the wording and what it means and what it says and all this stuff. So what we're doing is we're taking tools and we're making them do something they weren't intended to do. So you might get some truth coming from a bad interpretation of Scripture, but is it the right truth? Are you fully equipped? You may have seen this, but Todd White, everybody, anybody familiar with Todd White? He just recently repented because he realized he'd been preaching a wrong gospel for all these years. Now, was he leading people to the Lord? Sure. Did he have a right heart about him? I believe so. I know people that know him. I don't know him. But they said he's a genuine man. But his gospel message was very weak because it was always about you and what God could do for you and how you could be happy. And he's now realizes that, no, it's not about you, it's about him. You're on your way to destruction. Jesus stepped in and gave a path that you could take to leave that. You need to recognize your sins and repent from them. It takes a big man to stand on stage on camera and tell everybody, guys, I've been wrong for 16 years. So good for him. You know what? Because I give people grace all the time. It's like, if your heart was right, you weren't maliciously teaching the wrong thing, hey, there's, there's room for improvement. We've all done it. We've all been there. We've all had bad ideas once or twice, right? Some of us continue to live our lives wrong by cheering for the Oklahoma Sooners, right? Bad ideas. They just they stick with you. You can't get rid of them. Oh, we love it when Stan's here. It just gives me material. It's just easy, you know? But that's the idea. I mean, what are we looking at? Being properly equipped. And with that, we have focused our attention on the armor of God. In Ephesians 6, let's read this. Verse 10, finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age and the spiritual host of wickedness in the heavenly places. Now, let me ask you a question. Do we wrestle with these things? Obviously. There's a reason Paul's writing this. These are the things that we contend with on a daily basis. But we don't even recognize it because we're too caught up in the nonsense. We have a natural mindset. We don't think spiritually. We just deal with it naturally. Somebody says something that offends us, we just assume they're jerks. They might be. But there could be something else going on there. Look at verse 13. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. Now, why does he say therefore? So because of all of these things... Take it up, the whole armor, not part of it, not a little bit of it, not the part you like. Put it all on. Stand, therefore, having girded your waist with truth, 
having put on the breastplate of righteousness, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, above all, taking the shield of faith with which you're able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one, take the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. Now, I'm going to spend a lot of time looking at this again, but when you see this armor, your mind should go is that I have now been equipped. God has given me every tool necessary for me to be able to do what? Withstand the attacks of the enemy. To go into battle prepared, confident, knowing I have everything that I need to protect me and shield me from anything coming against me. That's what you need to know. So I'm not going to go through every piece again. We've been focusing here on the last part about prayer. Verse 18, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit. Verse 18 in the NASB says, with all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit. And with this in view, be on alert with all perseverance and petition for the saints. So we have talked about this praying in the Spirit concept. What is it? What is happening? We have to understand what he's saying. We began to break that down, looking at it, allowing Scripture to interpret Scripture. What is praying in the Spirit? Does it mean being led by the Spirit? Sure, it can. But ultimately, praying in the Spirit is talking about praying in tongues. That is really what that term is used. We saw Paul talk about that in 1 Corinthians. When I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my understanding is unfruitful. So in order to look at that, then we've got to look at the beginning of praying in tongues. When did that happen? Well, it happens in Acts chapter 2. So let's look at this. Start in verse 1. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place, and suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And then appeared to them divided tongues as of fire. One sat upon each of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the multitude came together and were confused. Because everyone heard them speak in his own language. Then they were all amazed and marveled, saying to one another, Look, are not all these who speak Galileans? How is it that we hear each in our own language in which we are born? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, Mesopotamians, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya, adjoining Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them speaking in our own tongues the wonderful works of God. So they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, Whatever could this mean? But others mocked and said they were full of new wine. And then Peter, standing up with the eleven, raised his voice and said to them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words. And it goes on. So what is happening here? We begin to break down this event. It's crucial to understand this. Because number one thing, what day is it? The day of Pentecost. When did Jesus tell them to go and wait? Ten days before. Wait in Jerusalem. What do we know about the Feast of Pentecost? Every able-bodied male Jew had to go back to Jerusalem. It was one of the three feasts that you had to report back. Now, if you were not able to, and when I say not able to, I mean like physically incapacitated to the point you couldn't, you got to pass. But Pentecost was the one that if you were going to skip one, this was the one they would often skip. So Passover was huge. Tabernacles was huge. Pentecost, eh, you know. It's one of those kind of things. And so, where would they be at? Remember, we've talked about this. Oh, they're in the upper room. Well, were they? Because we know on the day of Pentecost that they would all go to the temple to pray. So I'm of the belief that they were at the temple, likely in Solomon's porch. We talked about that. Not going to go back into all of that. If you have any questions about that, you can either talk to me afterwards or go back and listen to the last couple of weeks. I explained it in more detail there. So, where they were, I believe the temple. How many were there? Well, it's 120, of course, unless... That was 10 days prior, and that's where they were staying. What we know for sure is that Peter stood up with the 11. We know for a fact there were 12 of them there. Were there more? Maybe. But let's not make that assumption. Bottom line, the 12 were there. So what is happening here? We know that this is the moment that Jesus told them they needed to wait. Why did they need to wait? They needed to wait for the Holy Spirit. Okay? Why did they need to wait? Because they were going to be endued with power from on high. And the result of that was they spoke in tongues. Now, we'll come back to all of this. What is happening in this moment? You've got to remember what's taking place. God works inside of covenants. If you study out what we call covenant theology, but if you study out the covenants, there's very unique features about all of them, and we're going to talk about that. So the first thing that I talked about last week is we have the new covenant that is happening in this moment. It was already ratified, now people are coming into it. What happens past this point? 3,000 men get saved. And it's just the beginning. The second part of this is, as a result of the work of Jesus, we now also have a new high priest. 
How do we have a new high priest? Because we have a new covenant. And underneath the old covenant, to be the high priest, you had to come from the lineage of, um, oh my goodness, I just lost it. Aaron, thank you. I almost said Adam and then I almost said Abraham, and I knew both of those were incorrect. Okay? Aaron, that guy. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, you know. Aaron, you had to be of his lineage, of which Jesus was not. So Jesus cannot be the high priest underneath the old covenant. Who established that covenant and those rules? God did. So therefore, the old one has to go so the new one can come in. And Jesus being the new high priest, read the book of Hebrews. I spent, I don't know, a year teaching on Hebrews on Wednesday night. And it was, I mean, going through that, you can see it very clearly what is taking place. So we have a new high priest. The third part of this is we have a new temple. The one not made with hands. You and I, the temple of God. The Holy Spirit now indwells the temple of God, just like He did before. Nothing has changed there except this temple is mobile. You started with the tabernacle, mobile, moved around, the Spirit of God moved with it. Then the temple was created, now the people came to the temple instead of the tabernacle moving to where the people were going. Now today, you and I, a temple of the Holy Spirit, we go out throughout all the earth, right? So now we take that same power, that same authority, that same presence of the Holy Spirit with us everywhere we go. Why is this so important? What is happening? Well, you talk about the tongues of fire and the confusion and all that kind of stuff. What was happening there? It was no different than when the temple itself was inaugurated, when it was Hanukkah, dedicated. That the presence of God and the fire of God came down. It filled the place where they were, so much so that the priests could not enter in to do their work. The presence of God was so strong. So all of these things are being inaugurated, if you will, for lack of a better term, in this moment. There's one part I talked about last week. What is he doing? He is reclaiming the world. Now, this one gets super deep. And I don't want to go back all through everything again. We recorded it last week. It's online, I'm assuming. It is. Good. That's why we keep him around. It's all online. You can go back and listen to it. It's in uh, iTunes. and uh, Don't ask me where it's at. Ask him where it's at. All right. If you don't know how to find it, he'll find it for you. Um, I'll just hand you my notes from last week. But in Deuteronomy 32, in Psalm 82, in Deuteronomy 4, you see the concept going back to the Tower of Babel, where the people came together as one when they were supposed to disperse. So God comes down, confuses their language, and they naturally disperse. They go to different parts, which is what God said. Then he handed over the reins of these different territories over the higher powers, these principalities, these, these things who were supposed to point people towards God. But God took for himself his portion, the nation of Israel. He, they were his chosen people. His inheritance is how he says it. The immediately uh, following chapter. So what's he doing in this moment? He's bringing everything back to one. Jew and Gentile. We're no longer multiples, but we come together. So you guys see that, you kind of understand what's happening here. It's a lot to take in, there's no question, all right? But what we have to begin to look at is what was the point of this moment? The Holy Spirit, why is He so crucial? Because we take this for granted. We've always had Him. There was a time where the people were not indwelt with the Holy Spirit, only certain people were where the Holy Spirit would come upon them. They were anointed for service. Now suddenly we always have this. We've always had this new covenant. We've never known about some sort of sacrificial system. We never knew a worship of false gods, if you will, to where in order to worship Yahweh, the one true God, we had to go to a land that wasn't ours, become one with them, take on all of their customs, and, and go through a whole process. Now what do we do? Lord, I repent. I make you my Lord and Savior. I mean, it's completely different. So because of that, we take all of this for granted, and we're just like, eh, you know, that's where all this bad theology comes from. Well, you can just do whatever you want. God loves you. He made you that way. No, He didn't. You're screwed up. He made a way to fix you. Some of y'all are still working on it. You'll get there. So what was going on here? Let's look at Luke chapter 24, verse 44. Then He said to them, these are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you. All things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms concerning me. And he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the Scripture. So he's referencing the Old Testament. We know that the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms were the three divisions the Jews used inside of what we call the Old Testament. So the entirety of it was written about him, and he opened their understanding. Suddenly, they're having the aha moment. You ever had that happen? 
you're reading something or somebody mentions a scripture and all of a sudden the light bulb turns on. You're like, ah, I get it now. Verse 46, and he said to them, thus it is written, which means what? You could go back and read it. It was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day. Who is the Christ? The Messiah, the anointed one. Jesus being the Christ. Christ is in his last name. I think we all know that. Just in case you didn't. And that the repentance and remission of sin should be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. And you are witnesses of these things. So who's he talking to? He's talking to the twelve. They were the ones that were witnesses. In order to be one of the twelve, what had to happen? You had to see the moment of his baptism with John up until his death and ultimate resurrection. That's why in Acts chapter 1, when they're trying to decide who they're going to make the 12th, Matthias gets chosen because there was only a few people that had been there from the beginning. In verse 49, he says this, Behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. Now, as I mentioned last week, when you ask somebody that grew up in some sort of a Pentecostal, charismatic, assembly of God, four square, any of those things, you ask them, why did the Holy Spirit come down on them? They will go to this. They will say, well, so you speak in tongues. Is that what Jesus said? It is not. In fact, it's not mentioned anywhere. He never said, guess what, boys and girls? When I leave, the Father sending the Holy Spirit, and you're going to babble in some language that you don't understand, and everybody who's an outsider is going to think you're completely nuts. Won't that be fun? That is not what he said. He said that you will be endued with power from on high. So what do we do with this? We have to properly look at Scripture in its context. We see that the point that Jesus made in pouring out the Holy Spirit upon them was to give them power to do what? Carry the work of the gospel wherever they went. Fair enough? We know that in the end of John, that he breathed on them, said, receive the Holy Spirit. So we know that they have the Holy Spirit within them, but he said you're going to be endued, or power is going to be poured upon you. And the result of these two things taking place is they spoke in tongues. You guys following me so far? Now what I'm going to tell you, and most of you know this, but you may not be able to break this down scripturally, is that this here is the evidence that this has taken place. In other words, this is a sign that the Holy Spirit has been poured out upon an individual. Now, God uses this all the time. Does God use signs? Sure. In fact, we often think about signs, wonders, and miracles. Jesus did these things. That's how we think of signs. But did God do other things as signs? What I want to show you today is that God does not change. Whatever is true in the Old Testament is true in the New Testament. The patterns of which God operates is the exact same. So what I want to go through is I want to go through a little bit of the Old Testament with you today. I want to go to Genesis chapter 9. I want to show you guys how God operates. He uses signs all the time. So Genesis chapter 9, this is right after the flood. The boat has docked. The animals are getting off. All the women are like, finally, I don't have to deal with these guys anymore. Genesis chapter 9, verse 1. So God blessed Noah and his sons, and he said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And the fear of you and the dread of you shall be on every beast of the earth and on every bird of the air and on all that move on the earth and on all the fish of the sea. They are given to your hand. Now, think about that. He is saying that now animals are going to fear you, which implies that prior to that, they did not. Could you imagine walking through the woods and here comes the grizzly bear? And instead of running from it, you pet it. And maybe you ride it. And you name it. I mean, it's a totally different setup. Verse 3, every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. Can we just take a minute and thank God for that? This is a good thing, y'all. I mean, the flood was bad. But the net result, really good. Because now we have barbecue. Thank you, Jesus. I have given you all things, even as the green herbs. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. Surely your life, for your lifeblood I will demand a reckoning. From the hand of every beast I will require it. And from the hand of man, from the hand of every man's brother, I will require the life of the man. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God he made man. And as for you, be fruitful and multiply. Bring forth abundantly in the earth and multiply in it. 
Then God spoke to Noah and to his sons and to him with him, saying, As for me, behold, I establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you. Okay, now do we qualify for that? Yes. So he's establishing his covenant with Noah and everybody that comes after him. With every living creature that is with you, the birds, cattle, beasts of the earth with you, all that go out of the ark, every beast of the earth, thus I establish my covenant with you. Never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. Never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. So what is the covenant? The covenant that God is making with Noah and all the descendants is that I'm never going to destroy the earth with water again. Did he say the earth would never flood again? No, he didn't. He said, I will never destroy the earth again with water. Now, he said, I establish my covenant with you. What did Noah have to do to maintain this covenant? He had to do nothing. It's a unilateral deal. God said, I'm going to do this. He didn't say, Noah, listen, if you'll do these ten things for me, then I will do this for you. A little quid pro quo. Could have been in Congress or something. He didn't say that. He said, I established this with you. Now look what verse 12 said. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant, which I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for perpetual generations. I set my rainbow in the cloud, and it shall be for the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. It shall be when I bring a cloud over the earth that the rainbow shall be seen in the cloud. I will remember my covenant, which is between me and you and every living creature of, the, of all flesh. The water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. The rainbow shall be in the cloud, and I will look on it to remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. And God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant which I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth so he creates this covenant and the covenant is i will no longer i will never again destroy the earth with water i will never destroy all flesh with water now we know he's going to do it with fire but he said i'll never do it with water and he says what this is the sign of the covenant and every time you see that what should you remember the covenant that god made that is the purpose of a sign. A sign is pointing you to something. Either look here, remember this. You guys following me on this? Because we have to get what's happening here. So the covenant was not um, conditional upon Noah's ability to do or keep something. It was strictly on God's word. And God left a sign in the earth that you could look at, that he could look at, and remember this everlasting covenant. It's perpetual for all generations. Ironically, the sign of the rainbow being adopted by who's adopted it, using it as a sign of pride, is a basically saying the sign was re remembering that God sent judgment upon the earth and then made a way afterwards. That using that as the symbol. In other words, nobody can judge me. It's irony. But the bottom line here is this. Do we see a sign for this covenant? Absolutely. Let's look at another one. Genesis chapter 17. Let's fast forward a little bit. Genesis chapter 17, verse 1, it says, When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am Almighty God, walk before me and be blameless, and I will make my covenant between me and you, and will multiply you exceedingly. Then Abram fell on his face, and God talked with him, saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with you. You shall be the father of many nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you a father of many nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of you, and kings shall come from you. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you in their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and your descendants after you. So who's making the covenant? God is. He's making a promise. What does Abraham have to do to keep it? Nothing. There is no contingencies. Also I give to you and your descendants after you the land in which you are a stranger, all the land of Canaan as an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, as for you, you should keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you throughout your generation. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male child among you shall be circumcised, and you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you." He who is eight days old, among you shall be circumcised. Every male child in your generation, he who is born in your house or bought with money from any foreigner who is not
not your descendant. He who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money must be circumcised. And my covenant shall be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. And the uncircumcised male child who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that person shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Now, what are we talking about? In order to be in this covenant, what did they have to do? Be circumcised. That was it. Why circumcision? Why is this weird? It is kind of weird. But you think about it with getting a little PG-13 here. But the seed of the man would pass through the sign of the covenant, creating a new child. All right? There's a little bit of science mixed in here. On the eighth day, why the eighth day? Why not the ninth day? Why not the seventh day? That's the day you took off. I mean, why not that day? It's interesting that when you study science, that vitamin K inside of a child's body on the eighth day is at 125% than it is normal. And it goes back to 100 on the ninth day. And that vitamin K, and there's another name for it that's really big and I can't pronounce it very well, so I'm not going to try. But it's at 125%. It aids in blood clotting, ironically. They discovered that about 50 years ago. So, a little piece of science for you. I'm Bill Nye the Science Guy today, apparently. (laughs) Except we use real science. Anyway. So what is going on here? He's giving a sign of the covenant. This is the covenant. In other words, what, what did, what did uh, Joshua do as soon as they crossed into the, the promised land? Before they were going over there, he stopped because all the people that were born in the wilderness had not been circumcised. They were getting things right before they went. This was a sign of that covenant. You guys see this. Does God use signs in these ways? Absolutely. There's many, many more we could talk about. Let's go to Isaiah chapter 38, verse 1. Some of you guys still flip your Bibles there. I'll give you a second. Somebody said the other day that I talk really fast, and I don't know what they're talking about. Isaiah 38, verse 1. In those days, Hezekiah was sick and near death. And Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos, went to him and said to him, Thus says the Lord, set your house in order, and you shall die and not live. Then Hezekiah turned his face toward the wall and prayed uh, to the Lord and said, Remember now, O Lord, I pray now how I have walked before you in truth and with a loyal heart and have done what is good in your sight. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. And the word of the Lord came to Isaiah, saying, Go and tell Hezekiah, Thus says the Lord, the God of David your father, I have heard your prayer, I have seen your tears. Surely I will add to your days fifteen years. I will deliver to you and this city from the hand of the king of Assyria, and I will defend this city. And this is the sign to you from the Lord, that the Lord will do this thing which he has spoken. Behold, I will bring the shadow on the sundial, which has gone down with the sun on the sundial of Ahaz, ten degrees backwards, so the sun returned ten degrees on the dial by which it had gone down. He gave a sign. When you see the sign, you know that I will fulfill what I have said I will do. You see how simple that that one is. Do you realize that the idea of the Sabbath was a sign of the Mosaic Covenant? The Sabbath keeping was the sign that they kept as a part of the Mosaic Covenant. There are signs everywhere. All throughout Scripture, signs, memorials, all of those things. Signs that you know that God has moved as He has promised. We could spend weeks just going through that. But we're not gonna. There are signs everywhere. But yet when we talk about this, we're like, well, no, 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 that can't be what that's talking about. Let's look at another one. You guys know this one. Isaiah chapter 7, verse 10. Moreover, the Lord spoke again to Ahaz, saying, Ask a sign for yourself from the Lord your God. Ask it either in the depth or in the height above. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, nor will I test the Lord. Then he said, Hear now, O house of David, is, is it a small thing for you to weary men? But will you weary my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Who are we talking about? I hope you know. Thank you. You get a Krispy Kreme. Tell your parents. We're talking about Messiah. Later his name becomes Jesus, but right now we're talking about the Messiah. The Lord will give you a sign. What's the sign? The virgins having a baby. If you didn't go through health class, let me clue you in. That's not how it works. It's a sign. Look at this thing come to fruition in Luke chapter 2, verse 8. Now there were in the same country shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were greatly afraid. And then the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be for all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be the sign to you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling cloths, Lying in a manger. What's the sign to the shepherds? When you find a baby 
wrapped in swaddling cloths and laying in a manger. Now that tells me something. If that is the sign that this is the one, that means there weren't 30 of them like that. They didn't go to the nursery looking like, oh, who had babies today? There was something unique about what was going on here. Now, if you were here around Christmas time, I taught through this, got rid of all the misconceptions that are out there. Um, go back and listen to that. It's online? Okay, it's online. Ask Evan. He'll point you to where it's at. But talking about all the shepherds and all the, the different things that are happening, you're like, we, we just have no idea. But the bottom line here is this. He gave them a sign to look for. When you see the babe, and swaddling cloth, and the manger. Three things. Very specific. Not random. You cannot mistake that. They knew where to go. So we see this idea, this concept, all throughout Scripture. Matthew chapter 16, verse 1. Then the Pharisees and Sadducees came and testing him, asked that he would show them a sign from heaven. So they were waiting on one. They were expecting one. And he answered and said to them, When it is evening, you say it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, you say it will be foul weather today, for the sky is red and threatening. Hypocrites, you know how to discern the face of the sky, but you cannot discern the signs of the times. So in other words, apparently, the times referring to the returning of the Lord, there are signs that will show them, and we should be able to discern them. Fair enough? Because he's getting on them. This was 2,000 years ago. I think we're a little closer today. So this is what's happening. There are signs that take place of God, that God uses to point us to different things that are taking place. So now, let's go back to Acts chapter 2, and let's read it again. Let's see what's going on. Verse 1, Acts chapter 2, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place, and suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, one sat upon each of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when they heard this sound occurred, the multitude came together and were confused because everyone heard them speak in his own language. And they were all amazed and marveled, saying to one another, Look, are not all of these who speak? Galileans, and how is it that we hear each in our own language in which we were born? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, those dwelling in Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya adjoining Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them speaking in our own tongues the wonderful works of God. So they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, whatever could this mean? But others mocking said they were all full of new wine. But Peter, standing up with the eleven, raised his voice and said to them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words. For these are not drunk as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is that what was spoken by the prophet Joel. So now he's referencing something. He's saying the moment you're seeing is what Joel talked about. Verse 17, It shall come to pass in the last days that I will pour my spirit on all flesh, your sons and daughters will prophesy, young men will see vision, old men dream dreams. On my men's service and maid service, I will pour out my spirit in those days. They will prophesy. I will show wonders in heaven above, signs in the earth beneath, blood, fire, vapor, smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness, the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now let's stop. What are we starting with? The last days. Now, here's what you've got to understand. Contextually and culturally speaking, that the Jews believed that the Spirit of God would be poured out upon the earth on the individuals when Messiah sets up his kingdom. That is what they believed. They're seeing the pouring out of the Spirit. Now, they were wrong. Remember, they were waiting on the reigning king. The suffering servant aspect had been lost a long time ago. But they believed at that point when the Spirit of God poured out that you would enter into a time of prophecy where your average guy could just prophesy. Remember, prophets were called, anointed, set apart. That's what they were thinking of. That is what's happening here. That is what Peter's talking about. This is the moment. Jesus wasn't reigning. So he's showing them that they were wrong in their beliefs. And what he's saying in verse 19, I'll show wonders and I will show signs. So is that what he's going to do? Absolutely. In fact, are we seeing that inside of the context of this, of what's happening in this event? Absolutely. We're seeing signs and wonders pouring out upon them. Now let's go on, verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, 
a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know. What's he talking about? Jesus was confirmed as Messiah by miracles, wonders, and signs. I'm not talking arbitrarily. Remember, there were four miracles that they thought only Messiah could perform. And Jesus performed all of those. I've gone through those a lot, so we can talk about it. If you have questions, you can see me afterwards. Bottom line is this. All the things that Jesus did was a sign that he was who he claimed to be. So Jesus' work in and of itself was a sign to the people. So does God use signs? Is he getting something across? Absolutely. So we're seeing that the Holy Spirit is poured out upon them. If you read into chapter 3, what's the first thing that happens with Peter? And when did it happen? It appears that it might have even been the next day. Because he goes to the temple to pray. There's the dude that's lame from birth sitting outside of the gate called Beautiful. Looking for money. Wasn't looking for healing. He's looking for some cash. And Peter tells him to stand up. And it throws a wrench in the plans of the temple servants there that day. So something has taken place. But let's talk about this one more time. The Holy Spirit was given to enable and empower every believer to go into the world to do the work of the ministry. The sign that the Holy Spirit has been poured upon a people is that they prayed in tongues. Let me prove to this to you scripturally. We're going to go to Acts chapter 10. Now there are five different places in the book of Acts where it talks about the Holy Spirit being poured upon people. We're going to look at one today. Because many of you guys already kind of have an idea of this, but I want to show this because I don't want to leave a stone left unturned. In Acts chapter 10, starting in verse 1, it says, There was a certain man in Caesarea named Cornelius, a centurion, who, what was called the Italian regiment, a devout man and one who feared God with all his household, who gave alms generously to the people and prayed to God always. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God coming in and saying to him, Cornelius. Now stop for just a second. Who is Cornelius? What's going on? He was a soldier. He was over men, usually over 100 or so. Typically at this point, it was over about 80 men. He was a God-fearer, which means he was not a proselyte. He feared Yahweh. He recognized Yahweh as God, but he had not gone through the full process of becoming a Jew or a proselyte Jew. All right? Verse 4. He observed him. He was afraid and said, what is it, Lord? And he said, your prayers and alms have come up for memorial before God. Send men to Joppa and send for Simon, whose surname is Peter. He is lodging with Simon a tanner, whose house is by the sea. He will tell you what you must do. And when this angel who spoke to him and had departed, Cornelius called two of his household servants and a devout soldier from among those who waited on him continually. So when he had explained all these things to them, he sent them to Joppa. Now, here's the question. Maybe you've never thought about this. Why did the angel not just tell him? He said to send for Peter because Peter will tell you what you need to do. Why didn't the angel just tell him? You see the angel give messages, directions by God and other places. Why not there? Well, I think this is a twofold approach. What's good for Cornelius is also ultimately good for Peter. That's my interpretation, if you will. Verse 9. The next day as they went on their journey and drew near the city, Peter went up on the housetop to pray about the sixth hour. Very common thing. Then he became very hungry and wanted to eat. But while they made ready, he fell into a trance. Very uncommon thing. They didn't just fall into trances all the time. And he saw heaven open and an object like a great sheet bound at the four corners, descending to him and let down to, uh, to the earth. In it were all kinds of four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, creeping things, and birds of the air. And a voice came to him saying, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. And Peter said, Not so, Lord. I have never eaten anything common or unclean. What's he referencing? The dietary laws underneath the Mosaic Covenant. And a voice spoke to him again, saying a second time, What God has cleansed, you must not call common. This was done three times, and the object was taken up to heaven again. So what do we see here? Well, we see it's clearly that God is doing away with the dietary laws. No. Okay? That's often what's said that is incorrect. Peter's going to interpret this for us here in just a minute. Verse 17. Now, while Peter wondered within himself what this vision he had seen meant, behold, the men who had been sent from Cornelius had made inquiry for Simon's house and stood before the gate. And they called and asked whether Simon, whose surname was Peter, was lodging there. While Peter thought about the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are seeking you. Arise, therefore, go down and go with them, doubting nothing, for I have sent them. Now let's stop here. Let's think about this just logically for a minute. There's a couple things that's going on. Cornelius has his vision, sends the guys. What are they supposed to look for? A dude named Simon, whose house is by the sea, he has to be a tanner, and staying in that place needs to be a dude named Peter. 
There are four criteria. We could call those signs. You will find a babe lying in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. So if they knock on, if, I mean, you know, who doesn't want to live by the ocean, right? So there's probably, you know, tons and tons of houses really nice with tennis courts in the back of them, no doubt in my mind. And they're probably knocking on every door. Is your name Simon? Oh, it is. Are you a tanner? Oh, no, sorry. I'm a butcher. I drive for Uber. Whatever. So what do they know? You're the wrong house. They know what to look for. You guys see that? So the angel gave them four explicit things to look for to find the right place. I know it doesn't clearly just state that, but if you use logic, you'll come to that conclusion. Here's another part that's interesting. When Peter is thinking about the vision, trying to figure out what it means because it didn't make any sense to him, the Spirit of God said to him, there are three guys looking for you. Get up, go with them, don't doubt anything. Did the Spirit of God speak to Peter? Sure. Was it audibly or inaudibly? We do not know because it doesn't clearly say. Most will assume it's audible. What does he tell them? He's giving them, so listen, there are three guys down there. Arise, go with them, doubt nothing. They came from me. Why does he tell them that? If a Roman soldier, especially the leader of a soldier, sends two guys to a Jew to pick him up, that typically doesn't end well. So he's giving them some reassurance. So Peter went down, verse 21, to the men who had been sent to him from Cornelius and said, Yes, I am he whom you seek. For what reason have you come? So he still doesn't know. The Holy Spirit told him just to go. He doesn't know why they're here. They said, Cornelius the centurion, a just man, one who fears God and has a good reputation among all the nation of the Jews, was divinely instructed by a holy angel to summon you to this house and to hear words from you. Now, why did they go through all of that? To put Peter's mind at ease. Don't worry. He's a just man. He fears God. And the Jews respect him. He's not a bad guy. Then he invited them in and lodged them. And on the next day, Peter went away with them and some of the brethren from Joppa accompanied him. So Peter didn't go by himself. He took some people with him. And the following day, they entered Caesarea. Now Cornelius was waiting for them. And he called together his relatives and close friends. So he invited everybody over. And as Peter was coming in, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. And Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up. I myself am also a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and he found many who had come together. So how many were there? We don't know. There's a bunch. Then he said to them, you know how unlawful it is for a Jewish man to keep company with or go to one of another nation, which is absolutely correct. They were not supposed to eat with them. That's why Jesus eating with the tax collectors was a big deal. They were not supposed to be doing any of this stuff. So he was not supposed to enter their home. But what does he say? But God has shown me that I should not call any man common or unclean. What's the interpretation of the vision? Has nothing to do with food. Don't make that mistake. Therefore, I came without objection as soon as I was sent for. I asked then, for what reason have you sent for me? So he still doesn't know. Cornelius said, four days ago I was fasting until this hour, and at the ninth hour I prayed in my house, and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayers have been heard, your alms are remembered in the sight of God. Then therefore, send therefore to Joppa and call Simon here, whose surname is Peter. He is lodging in the house of Simon a tanner by the sea. When he comes, he will speak to you. So I sent to you immediately, and you have done well to come. Now therefore, we're all present before God to hear all the things commanded you by God. Now, just asking a lot. Peter has no idea why he's here. Tell me why you're here, Peter. God told me to go get you. Now you tell me why you're here. You see that? But what was Peter's mission? Always to preach the gospel. Go into all the world, preach the gospel. That was the mission. So he didn't have to question what he was supposed to be preaching. He knew. Look at verse 34. This is crucial. Then Peter opened his mouth and said, In truth, I perceive that God shows no uh, partiality, but in every nation, whoever fears him and works righteousness is accepted by him. What are we talking about? The fourth part. You see how this ties in? This is a big deal to him. Because even though God had said it, and Jesus had made it very clear to go into all the world. Didn't say just go visit all the Jews. Go into all the world. It had not clicked for Peter. But that vision opened up his mind. And the fact that all of these things are coming together now makes him realize that God shows no partiality. Every nation, whoever fears him, and works righteousness is accepted by him. Verse 36, the word which God sent to the children of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ. He is Lord of all. We're right there, right? You see the world coming back together. That word, 
you know, which was proclaimed throughout all Judea and began from Galilee after the baptism which John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, who went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. Why was he anointed with the Holy Spirit? The power came upon him. And we are witnesses of all things which he did both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem, whom they killed by hanging on a tree. So he's an eyewitness. God raised up on the third day and showed him openly, not to all the people, but to witnesses chosen before by God, even to us who ate and drank with him after he arose from the dead. So Peter's making a bold claim that Jesus died, certainly. They killed him, but God raised him up, and they ate lunch with him. So unless this is a weekend at Bernie's moment, Jesus really came back. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that it is he who was ordained by God to be judge of the living and the dead. So what was he commanded to preach? He knows this moment. To him, all the prophets witness that through his name, whoever believes in him shall receive remission of sin. So all of this is the prophets had witnessed this moment coming. But watch verse 44. While Peter was still speaking these words. The Holy Spirit fell upon all those who heard the word. And those of the circumcision who believed were astonished, as many as came with Peter, because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. Remember, before that, to be a Jew, Acts 15 is dealing with this very issue. In order to be right with God, you had to essentially become a Jew. Now they're seeing the Holy Spirit poured out upon these pagan people. How did they know that that took place? Verse 46, for they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God. That word for means because of this. They heard them speak. That's how they knew. That was the sign that the Holy Spirit had fallen upon them, which means what? They have too have been endued with power. Then Peter answered, can anyone forbid water that these should not be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord. Then they asked him to stay for a few days. So they received the Holy Spirit in the exact way that the Jews had, that the twelve had. Same thing. He's preaching, the Holy Spirit falls upon them. How did they know? They were speaking in tongues and magnifying God. Now look at chapter 11, verse 1. Now the apostles and brethren who were in Judea heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God. Now this is a big deal. Because where are they at? We're talking about all these back in Jerusalem and Judea. I mean, all of them, they're like, wait a minute. You're telling me that the people that are outside, the unchosen people, the everybody else has been chosen by God. And when Peter came up to Jerusalem, those of the circumcision contended with him saying, you went in to uncircumcised men and ate with them. You can see why this is such a big deal. The circumcision is the Jews. But Peter explained it to them. In order from the beginning, saying, I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, an object descending like a great sheet, let down from heaven by four corners, and it came to me. When I observed it intently and considered, I saw four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, creeping things, and birds of the air. And I heard a voice saying to me, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, Not so, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has at any time entered my mouth. But the voice answered me again and sent from heaven, what God has cleansed, you must not call common. Now this was done three times, and all were drawn up again into heaven. At that very moment, three men stood before the house where I was, was, having been sent to me from Caesarea. Then the Spirit told me to go with them, doubting nothing. Moreover, these six brethren accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. And he told us how he had seen an angel standing in the house, and he said to him, Send men to Joppa, and call for Simon, whose surname is Peter, who will tell you the words by which all, you and all your household will be saved. And as he began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them as upon us at the beginning. So what's he talking about? Acts chapter 2. Then I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John indeed baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So now he is connecting the Holy Spirit falling upon people with what Jesus said in John 1 and the baptism in the Holy Spirit. You see how he's tying these two things together? Verse 17, if therefore God gave them the same gift as he has given us when we believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could withstand God? So he talks about this gift. He talks about how they're baptized. How did he know the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out upon the Gentiles? What was the sign? It was a sign. 
Verse 18, and when they had heard these, they became silent, and they glorified God, saying, then God has also granted to the Gentiles repentance to life. The Holy Spirit, they were to wait so they could be endued with power. The result of that is that they spoke in tongues. That told them that the Holy Spirit had fallen upon the people. You guys all see that? You guys with me? Now, we often glorify this, and this is important, and this is crucial, because part of, and we'll go into this more here in a couple of weeks, part of this was this time of prophecy. And you will see Paul compare speaking in tongues and prophesying in the same thing, in the same weight. But the bottom line is this. This was not the purpose. This was the purpose. This was the net result. Were those signs important to God? Oh my goodness, yes. So much so that Jesus called the people hypocrites for not seeing the signs of the times. God's signs are important to Him. So we should never undervalue, but let's not get the order out of whack. The Holy Spirit poured upon them so they would be endued with power from on high. And the net result of that is they spoke in tongues. We often hear people preach that you need to be baptized with the Holy Spirit so you can preach in, uh, speak in tongues. You need to be endued with power. This is important. This is crucial. We need this. Do we have a powerless church today? We do in America, parts of the world. But there is not a week that goes by that I don't hear stories of, of incredible things happening all around the world. Even stuff happening in this country. You just don't hear it. You know why you don't hear it? Because they're not the people that are writing books and selling meetings and all of this other stuff. They're just doing the work of the ministry. And then they move as the Spirit leads. We've got to keep all of this in mind. Because this part here, the praying in the Spirit, is part of that armor. It's important. Do not misunderstand me. But you don't get this without this. And if you don't have this, then how can you be a witness in all the earth for Jesus? And that is what Peter was called to do. And that's what you and I are called to do. We're just block by block, guys. We're building a foundation. We are going somewhere with all of this. This is not arbitrary, I promise you. But we have to see what's going on in Scripture. Man, isn't God's Word awesome? I mean, when you get into it and you break it down and you begin to realize what's being done here, it makes it powerful. If you want me to preach a sermon on how to have a great life or your best job or your great family, I'm not the guy, okay? Because you've met my family. They're awesome. But I'm telling you guys, we've got to get back to rightly dividing the word of truth so that we are not tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. That doesn't mean every doctrine is bad. We just want it to be perfect. We want it to be right. We want to do what God has set up for us. We have to become students of the Word and get back to looking at it through God's lens and saying, what does God say on the matter? I don't care the denomination a person was brought up in or lack thereof. All I care is what does God say on the situation. And that's what we will be moved by. Am I alone?